for academic calling, Peggy Orenstein. We're thrilled to welcome back for the third time, Peggy Orenstein, who will be familiar to listeners and readers alike for her books, Girls and Sex and Boys and Sex. This time, we're talking with Peggy about her latest book, Unraveling, what I learned about life while shearing sheep, dyeing wool, and making the world's ugliest sweater. About the project that Peggy took on during the COVID-19 pandemic, learning the various processes behind knitting a sweater and then knitting one, Unraveling delves into the history of women's work, particularly spinning, dyeing, and carding, but also examines women's roles in shearing sheep. It meditates on grief and loss on both personal and wider levels. It examines the various stages and transitions a woman experiences over the course of her life. And finally, we learn about Peggy's three-pound sweater, which really isn't that ugly at all. We talk about Peggy with all of this and more, and as ever, it was a pleasure having her back on the podcast. Unraveling is available now in hardcover, ebook, and audiobook from Harper Books. So today for the podcast, we are talking with a very good friend of the podcast because this is her third time back with us. We are talking with Peggy Orenstein, author this time of Unraveling, what I learned about life while shearing sheep, dyeing wool, and making the world's ugliest sweater. Peggy, thank you so much for coming back and talking with us. Oh, I'm so glad that you have me back. Thank you. So for folks who don't know what your latest book is about, why don't we start with you (laughs) telling us a little bit about Unraveling? The larger thing is that I used this conceit of, or this actual set of activities of shearing a sheep, um, processing and spinning uh, wool, um, dyeing it with natural dyes, and knitting up the result into um, a sweater, which isn't that ugly, but it weighs three pounds. It's got its issues. Um, to look at a whole bunch of different things, to look at um, climate anxiety, climate change, why we don't think about our clothing the way that we think about our food, um, to look at uh, the nature of creativity um, to, you know, for myself to confront midlife and think about that and my parents decline and dying and my daughter leaving and the empty nest and all of that to look at the radical nature of women's work. Um, it was just like a you could it turned out you could tell the entire history of the world. And I did through looking at fiber the way that you could looking at tea or looking at salt. But initially what I just thought was, you know, the lockdown happened. I'd been touring with Boys and Sex, my previous book that I was on talking to you about. Um, that stopped. Everything stopped, you know. And those of us who were lucky enough to be, you know, worried well, to be financially stable in our homes, um, didn't get sick, all of that during that initial time. Uh, you know, you're just sitting there thinking, oh my gosh, what am I going to do? And the only thing that kind of kept me from hysteria, because we were all hysterical, right? was um was knitting and so <laughs> i was i was sitting and knitting and i and like any good journalist i would look at my you know look what i was and i would think geez i wonder how anybody thought of knitting like two sticks and like who thought and then i thought wait a minute how did they think of yarn forget knitting like how did they think of yarn and then i would go back and i think i gotta do i gotta go shear a sheep and start from the beginning and see how this happened so that was kind of how i did it and how did you find shearing a sheep <laughs> the hardest thing I've ever done. So that was the, you know, that was the central. The, I always feel like when I go into a book that I know one braid, it's one string of the braid, one strand of the braid. That was the strand I knew that I was going to go do this thing. Um, and shearing sheep, it turns out, like, I missed so many red flags. You know, people said, uh, like, the fact that my shearing teacher was half my age, that should have been a red flag. The fact that, I mean, 95% of shearers are men, and that is partly misogyny, pure and simple, but it's also because 
it takes a lot of upper body strength, ignored that red flag. You know, ignored uh, that peep that I read that um, minute for minute shearers burst, uh, burn twice as many calories as marathon runners. Ignored that red flag. You know, I was like, sure, I can do this thing. Sign me up. Um, so yeah, it's super hard. It's super hard because and it doesn't hurt them. It's really important to say. It doesn't hurt them. It's not inhumane. They need to be shorn. If they're not shorn, they can't. They keep on growing because we bred them to do this over millennia, and they will die. They won't be able to eat. They will go blind. They will die. So they have to be shorn. Um, but you know, they're they're slippery because they're covered with lanolin, and it's like trying to cut a toddler's. You know, they don't really want to be there, um, and they have hooves and they kick, and you have to have them on their back, which is easy to do. That too doesn't hurt them. You just flip them over, but. Um, yeah, and then you're holding a uh, hot whirring um, blade that's going really fast and doesn't have a safety. So the the sheep was fine. I am missing some of my finger tops now. Hazard of the trade, and and I'm sure something that was also quite quite capable of focusing the mind for yeah. a period of time. <laughs> really fast. One of the things that I really thought was very interesting about unraveling as I read through the book is how you kind of had to shift your expectations about um what you what you wanted to do which is ultimately make this this three pound sweater which we'll, we'll come back to i'm, I'm yeah. sure but also um the idea of learning and going through the, these various processes right because because you didn't just say okay well i'll just go to the store and and buy some yarn you actually you went straight to the source um to, to get it yourself and one of the things that I think is really interesting is how you kind of go take all of us through the various processes. So what do you think you learned about the process of process and sort of how mm. that applies to thinking creatively, whether that's in terms of, of intellectual creativity and the book that everyone is holding in their hands or listening in their ears or on their tablet, and then also the creative, the actual creative process that you did, the yeah. process of making making the sweater. I mean, I'm so glad you asked that because I've really been thinking about that since the book came out, along with the fact that, of course, everybody starts with the shearing, like the craziness of shearing, but that shearing, it shows how urbanized we've become, that everybody's sort of enthralled with that because it was a pretty normal thing to do not that long ago. A lot of people would have been like, yeah, of course you sheared a sh Like, what's such a big deal about that, right? Um, but we are so divorced from um, how our clothing is created and the implications of that are so enormous, which I'm sure that we'll talk about in terms of um, planetary health and, and going through that process really brought that forward for me. But the creativity piece, um, I, it's funny because I reread, I mean, you read the book all the time. I read it aloud all the time. I, you know, of course you do because you're, you're writing, you're editing, but somehow it wasn't until it was done and I was reading the audiobook that I thought, wow, through three quarters of this book, I am so resisting the process. I'm just going, oh my God, I suck. Oh my God, this is terrible. Oh my God, I can't do it. Oh my God, I'm so frustrated. And then there's a point when I'm making the color blue, which is its own chapter, because it's a unique thing and really hard to do, um, where uh, I suddenly realize that the process is the point. And it's not the product. And I think about this having that in my office, I had this um, uh, cartoon up by Linda Berry that where she said it's called the two questions. And she writes about how when she was a little kid, she used to just like draw like like a fountain, just stuff poured out. And then suddenly along the way, she said something came up and you know somehow you learn the two questions, which are, is it good? 
and does it suck? And the second you ask those two questions, it's the death of creativity. And then I learned this other phrase called creative mortification, which means death. And it's that moment when you're, again, usually a little kid and you're doing something, you know, kind of unconsciously that's fun, whether it's that you're um, drawing or you're playing an instrument or you're doing some experiment with a test tube or you're singing off key or, you know, whatever. It can be many, many things. And somebody gives you a too harsh critique and you put that thing down and you never do it again, right? And I, I will say the other day, I was talking about this with my daughter and she said, but mom, also, sometimes somebody says something to you that sticks with you forever and is the reason you keep doing it. So it can go the other way. There can be like, I don't know what creative life giving would be, but you know, same thing. But anyway, you have that creative moment of creative mortification. And so instead of asking the two questions, is this good or does this suck? You have to try to, and what I try to do both with this project ultimately, and also, I mean, I'm a writer for a living. And so it is, you know, it's a creative thing, but it also is very bound up in commerce. I have to sell books, you know, or I can't do it anymore. I have to market, I have to do all these things. And those things can kind of erode the joy and take away from that creativity. Um, so to refocus by doing this and seeing this through this project, experience rather than outcome and thinking about asking things like, what worked? What could I try next time? What might be different? What might give me a different, you know, what, what, what might I do differently? What would really be fun? You know, what would be crazy? Like all these things, these different kinds of questions that are about enjoying the doing because really the product is not the point. And that's why I called it the world's ugliest. It's not that ugly. It's actually kind of nice looking, but it, I wanted to make the point that it could be ugly. That could be fine. It didn't matter how it came out. It was learning all I learned along the way that was the key part of it. All the doing that you talk about in the book, whether it's um, shearing the sheep, spinning the yarn, making the colors, all of that allowed you to learn and consequently to teach others a bit about things that maybe folks don't think a lot about most of the time. Something that I thought was very um, compelling was how you take the time and space to talk about craft, uh, women's craft and skill, right? Because there's that also kind of disjunction between unskilled versus skilled labor. So let's talk a little bit about um, a couple of things. One, what did you learn about craft that was maybe surprising to you or intriguing to you and then let's talk about color because i, I do oh. think when you i do think when you talked about how you made blue um that that was that was a very interesting part of the book so let's let's do with those two things first yeah 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 well i mean it was really kind of what, what was surprising to me was how radically political women's work had been and particularly work with textiles because that is what we did right i mean you you go back there's 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 a theory by um Oh gosh, I'm blanking on her name all of a sudden. I'm sorry, but it's but the one who wrote 20,000 years of women's work that that Venus de Milo before she lost her arms is in a position, body position where she was probably spinning. Like we women had to spin all the time to make enough fiber to keep us clothed. Because I mean, the thing about cloth is we come into this world, we're wrapped in cloth, right? We leave this world, we're wrapped in cloth. In between, we spend a tremendous amount of time wrapped in cloth one way or another. All that cloth had to be made by hand, by women. So even things like I read about like the Vikings, you know, you, you think about those burly men with their dopey hats, you know, zipping across the Atlantic. Who made their sails? 
women made those sales. They had to spin every single bit of thread. And it was two years of work to spin one sale. I mean, the outfitting the whole ship was tremendous amount of, like thinking about all that labor. So there's, there's the fact of it. And the fact of how women did this stuff and, you know, and, and how it gave us fairy tales, because that's where they came from. Women would be sitting around spinning and it was boring and they didn't have the Internet. So they would make up these stories. And then these guys came along and wrote them down and put their names on it. But it was women. And that's why they're all about spinning and stuff, you know, and princesses who, you know, get to get away from spinning and get to do other things, you know. Um, and then you move forward and it's taken out of the home and in, into the industrial revolution, put young women into mills. And they um, for ultimately protested, uh, you know, by the tens of thousands and their protests turned out to be futile. They did not help them. However, they laid the groundwork for the modern labor and feminist movements. And it was teenage girls who did that. And when you look at today's movements and you look at people like Greta Thunberg and you look at Malala or you look at, well, X Gonzalez is non-binary but grew up in a female body or assigned female at birth body. It's not an accident that the leaders of these movements that are voices and conscience are teenage girls. And you know, the American Revolution, um, women, we learn about the Boston Tea Party. We don't learn about women's boycott of um, British cloth and homespun and the radical spinning bees which were as equal, equally, if not more important to launching the revolution. We don't learn about the women's spy, you know, the way that women, because they were seen as so innocuous, they would, there's a spy who tucked information about British troop, move, troop movements into her yarn balls and would throw them to the, you know, to the patriots, you know, or today, you know, and, and that goes, that history, there's a reason why, no matter how you feel about those hats, when, Donald Trump was elected that women knit. There is a long important history of political knitting and, and knitting as a voice of dissent for women. So now, you know, women, they protest nuclear wars. They, uh, they do climate change work with their knitting. They do, I mean, one of the things that's been amazing about launching this book is all the stories I've been hearing of how women use their knitting politically to raise awareness, to raise funds as an act of protest. There was just a thing in the New York State Legislature sure, a couple of weeks ago where women unfurled this ginormous banner that was crocheted with Lady Liberty and her torch instead of having flames. It's a giant uterus. And it oh, was a, I have to look that up. Yeah, it was a statement. It was fantastic. And it's a statement about, you know, support of reproductive rights. I mean, they were, it, our history and fiber, which we don't think about, don't learn about, is obfuscated for reasons of you know misogyny and disinterest and because even we i think as women often discount degrade and dismiss work that is associated with women and don't recognize its politics historically and don't recognize its politics this was tremendous stuff it's super it's super interesting and it's unfortunate because you know one of the uh, one of the abbreviations you use throughout the book is for she learned from her mother yeah and and i think about i've i've thought about that abbreviation a lot um with respect to thinking about sort of this history and and how we we learn this sort of part of women's history in textile and how how are we going to not lose it and so and and that sort of comes to 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 how we tell it um who tells it to a certain extent but but also how we tell it um and how we make sure that it's inclusive of, of as many voices um, yeah. in kinds of voices that that we can um to help tell the story of women's history and and i yeah, feel because, like no go ahead i'm sorry 
I was going to say because it's also it's complicated because there's those of us who do this work as a form as a luxury, right? right? And then there's people who are doing this work basically as forced labor, and you have this whole continuum of what that means and the whole histories through through that, or you have like you know I mean it's really Sojourner Truth is always was always not always but often photographed with her knitting um, as a state because she believed both as a statement of her of being a woman. Um, of being a patriot because people knit patriotically then during the Civil War, and also because she believed that freedom for enslaved people, the key to that was industry and, mm -hmm. and doing handiwork um, as a form of uh, a labor for yourself, not as forced labor, that that was really important to the liberation of her people. So, I mean, there's all this stuff um, that that goes into looking at women's Work and, and, and the ways that we've, I mean, I, the, with the, she learned from her mother, I learned from my mom and that was so common. And, and it was really, my mom was, is, had died several years before I started this project. And that was a, you know, a big form of connection. Um, but I also am somebody who, because of when I was born, really rejected a lot about my mom um, and rejected a lot about women's work and just, you know, degrade, just thought of it as beneath me in many ways. So this was sort of a reclamation and a thinking about that. And, and then there's all the things that I write about, you know, we learn from our moms that we don't want to pass along. And that, you know, becomes a thing too of with my own daughter of like, what does she learn from her mom? What do I not want her to learn from her mom? What can't she learn from her mom? That becomes a whole meditation in the book too. Yeah, yeah. Um, and one of the things that you learned throughout your process um, was a bit about colors. Mm -hmm. And a bit about a bit about the color blue, which is trickier than many people might think. So what what did you learn about making colors and how how did your experience with the color blue go overall, mm. do you think? Well, I mean, generally, I started by trying to make things from my backyard um, using flowers and things, which I could basically get Middle Earth colors. And I got kind of bored with that. But um, it made everything, though, look, I mean, everything pulsated to me for a while, like every leaf, every branch, every flower, like what would happen if I boiled that up or simmered that up and dunk cloth, you know, it was like a, it was such an amazing lens through which to look at the world. Um, blue is a whole different thing because you, it's, I mean, I can't even explain it because every time I try, I feel like a very powerful urge to look at my text messages. A word, by the way, text, which comes from textile. And what do we... Uh, like so many words. And what do we do when we have all those little things that we've got, you know, when we keep going and talking with somebody, we have a thread, right? I mean, even in the virtual world, we keep those metaphors that have been so historically important. Anyway, but but blue is is crazy. And 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 it was it, it has to build up on um on fabric as opposed to sinking in like other cloths, which is sort of cool because like that's why your jeans rub off when you get dark blue jeans under your legs. Um, but it also gives us an insight into what if, you know, we, we value that in blue. We value that our genes wear to their individual, unique form that is to our bodies and our bodies only. And what if we value that in our other clothes? That would really change how we looked at and wore and, and consumed our clothing. Beyond that, the crazy thing about color and blue in particular is it's a cultural construct. And I had no, I mean, that blue, and I know your, your listeners are going, no, it's not. And they're like, no. So like with blue, the ancient Greeks could not see blue. They mm -hmm. just did not perceive it. Um, it was there, but they didn't see it. They saw, they, so Homer describes the sea as wine dark or purple. He describes the sky as bronze 
they didn't have a lot of blue-eyed people, but they just saw them as demonic. It, it was just like I to, to sort of walk around and understand that you know, and the separation of blue and green. A lot of cultures didn't separate blue; they saw blue and green as the same color for millennia. Um, in Japan, still, if you look at a stoplight, they look blue to a Western eye, and and the Japanese government just says, no, it's just the bluest shade of green. You know, I mean, it's just, it's and and then I think, well, how can that be? And then I think, well, some cultures describe colors as they don't care about the prism. It's like, is it shiny or dull? Is it rough mm -hmm. or smooth? And when I look around and I think, well, I'm looking, sitting in my husband's office right now and there's a yellow container nearby and it's shiny. And I wouldn't think about that if I was describing the color. I wouldn't think, oh, it's shiny. You know, I would say it's yellow. And But isn't that a different yellow than the yellow that's on the book sitting next to me, which is a kind of rough, you know, book jacket cover, cardboardy yellow. That's not the same, but I don't care. They're both yellow to me, you know? So you see, the, and then they, they the, so the, and, and fortunes rose and fell on this stuff in ancient times. So in Spain, yeah. you know, red, they discovered how to make red from, the, in Central America, they were making red from bugs. And you would squish this female cochineal bug. And I don't know how they knew they were female. And, the, and one drop of red, durable, color fast, light fast, water fast, Carmine came out. It was the most brilliant red ever. It took hundreds of thousands of them to dye a, pe a pound of cloth. Nobody knew how they did it for hundreds of years. No other. No, they kept this secret. They didn't know what these things were. If it was wood chips, if it, nobody knew, and they were worth their weight in gold. Meanwhile, the blue merchants figured out how to get indigo, and that red and blue started going at war. And the red merchants would would bribe stained glass makers to make hellfire blue, so that people would associate it with hell and not wear it and like it was crazy and then in the 19th century this guy comes along and like steve jobs in his garage and he has a test tube he's doing a totally different experiment and wipes it out and sees that the the kind of pinkish purple color that we call mauve um doesn't come out of his white cloth and he has invented chemical dye and within a couple of decades natural dye is gone just gone all that money, all that fortune, all those people out of a job, just like today. And that was a big lesson too, like the ways that these, in that technology and these sweeps of history can just, things can go in the space of a minute, in the space of our lifetimes. And that change is the only constant. And that is so much what we have been grappling with now. So it was incredible to see it happening hundreds of years ago. One of the things that is also interesting about thinking about how we make color, especially how you try, how you tried in, in your backyard to make color. Uh, I enjoyed that. I enjoyed imagining you out there with all of your tubs um, full of water, trying to trying using to get these, so much water, trying so to get yeah. trying to get all of these all of these colors. But but the other thing that I think a lot of the book comes back to at various points, um, whether we're thinking about you know literally the sheep itself, or you know getting the getting the wool from the sheep to, to the products that that we're making is this idea as you said earlier a bit earlier of the environmental impact and mm -hmm. and much as there are sort of parts of the process for creativity and from learning all of these different tasks of the trade there's also all of these different parts of um, the environmental process at work so yeah. i was wondering if you could talk a little bit about what you learned and what you sort of started to, to think a lot about and meditate a lot about on in terms of the environmental impact of making the sweater. Yeah. I mean, you know, it started 
again, of course, with the shearing, because I, I learning about how um, the wool industry in this country had basically collapsed and the rise of I, I when I went to the ranch, I was wearing um, my, you know, one of those fleece fleece, even that we call it fleece, right? Tops um, that uh, is made from recycled bo water bottles and feeling so good about that, you know, and then I, I realized it was like waving a ham and cheese sandwich on white bread at a bar mitzvah at this place. Like they're looking at me going, you're wearing a synthetic top. Um, and we, our, our natural fiber and, and, you know, even the recycle, the recycle, they're going to, it's going to end up in landfill anyway, eventually. It's not a closed loop thing. So there was that piece. Um, it sheds microfibers like a bad Labrador retriever, which are these little teeny invisible um, or to the naked eye um, fibers that are plastic. And they um, are now the worst, uh, the, the, the biggest threat to the oceans. And I used to think like when I was a little kid, I'm Jewish and we used to, I lived in Minneapolis and we would throw our sins into the lake every Rosh Hashanah. That's how, what you're supposed to do, right? And I would imagine our congregation had been around for a hundred years. And I think, man, this lake, what is in the bottom of this lake? You know, with all these sins, it's like this gooey, I imagine this gooey, black, tarry, yucky, you know, microfibers are like that, but they're real. And I mean, the good news is that in Europe, they're starting to make sure that they're, they're, they're having, they're starting legislation in some countries where you can't make new washing machines that don't have microfiber filters. Um, so that is starting to change. But right now, like you wash that top 250 or, or your Lululemon, you know, leggings or whatever you're wearing, uh, 250,000 microfibers, boom, right into the ocean or the waterway, whatever. So there was that. I didn't know about any of that. I didn't realize that synthetic fibers, 70% of our clothing now, it has synthetic fibers. And that is an enormous change in my lifetime. Also, that it used to be that that like you went and got your school clothes that was when you got you know that was it clothing came out four times a year for adults that was it then you've got zara you've got h&m you've got you know mango all these fast fashion places that came on the scene and bammo you're getting hundreds of new fashions a week then on top of that you have ultra fast you've got sheen you've got boohoo those you know there is no ethical way you can buy a piece of clothing from one of those places. You just shouldn't. Just I'm just like saying it. Don't buy it. Just don't buy anything from those places ever. Because those places, you know, between the labor, inhumane labor, between the, the synthetic fibers, between the fast turnaround, they are an environmental catastrophe. And it made me a little crazy for a while. Like I, I would go into, I couldn't go into stores for a while. I felt so overwhelmed by looking at things that I knew would end up in landfall and their greenwashing of it and all of that. I've kind of, you know, I've gotten better. It also helps me, but I did ask a lot. Why don't we think of our clothes the way we think of our food? Why aren't we on top of this in this way? Why aren't we lobbying in this way? And I think it's because we don't have the connection in the same way. I didn't. And that's what starting this, that's what doing this project gave me was understanding what it takes, what it means to clothe ourselves and that we have to be more responsible and aware and do what we have done with our food and thinking about what we put on our bodies. How do you think people can become more knowledgeable about that kind of consumption? Well, we can look at what we, where, what we are, I mean, it can be a rabbit hole. Like I already, I was feeling a little bit like, oh gosh, I'm already, you know what, buying organic food, trying to buy things local, um, 
driving my Prius, composting. I live in California, so I don't flush if it's only pee. You know, I single use plastic, straws, like all this stuff. I thought, I just want to buy a damn pair of pants. And, you know, I would feel like, ah, it just makes me want to take to my eco-certified bed. Um, but, um, but you also have to know. And so looking at, um, I mean, some of it, we can't put everything on the individual. That's not right. That's not fair. However, you can support companies that are making change. You can, can support B corporations. You can support companies that are, that where you look at their, um, supply chains or that are being transparent about that, or that are making things from fibers. But I think the bigger push is that we have to push our governments to regulate the fashion industry because there's two, they are self-regulated and it's, can I swear on your, on go for it. It's bullshit. And so the EU right now is starting to do that. They're rolling out some regulations and that's the good news um, that will force accountability through the supply chain for manufacturers. Um, some countries are doing more than others. Uh, some, there's some overarching things that are happening. Um, so we need to be pushing our leaders um, to be adopting the same kinds of measures and to be not making them voluntary, to be making them mandatory. So I think that's really where our efforts have to go. Yeah, and I think I think that's just another way of sort of being um, learning how to be a smart consumer uh, yeah. and, a, and a smart participant in capitalism, if that's what we all have to participate if we in. Yeah, we have to try. And it's, you know, and, and it is, I mean, I was just, I have to say, I, I was, I wasn't, completely ignorant. I mean, you kind, everybody kind of knows fast fashion sort of bad, but I didn't realize the kind of, in the, in the same way that Omnivore's Dilemma kind of reveals, or Fast Food Nation, you know, the cost of industrial farming. I hoped on a, I mean, I'm not doing it, that wasn't my only focus, but I hope that one of the themes that comes out of it is the kind of Omnivore's Dilemma idea around fashion and around clothing and what we can do differently around that. Something else that struck me a lot is sort of the, you talk about at least five women fairly constantly throughout the book. Um, one of whom is yourself, uh, yeah. one, is your, one is your daughter, uh, one is your mother, and then the other two are two women who you met um, at the farm, Laura, uh, Lorna and Hazel. Mm. And what was interesting to me when I took a step back from reading this, um, and maybe it's also because I will be 42 this year, so that might also have something to do with it. But um, it was it it was taking a step back for me and thinking about sort of if if we line all of these women up, and if I insert myself into this mix, but if if we line all of these women up, there is we have quite the spectrum in in this book, and to me that was very refreshing because you kind of talk about a lot of transitional moments for women as as they sort of go along throughout the stages of womanhood. And for me, that was really interesting to, to sit and to think about because we don't often get to read about all of the stages and all of the experiences that women deal with throughout their the course of their lives. Um, so I'm wondering, like, was that something that was maybe maybe not in the forefront of your mind um, when, when you were tackling this project, but is it something that you've thought about since you finished the book and kind of take a look back because you say you read, you read the audio book, um, but does it strike you that you're kind of also telling a story, um, a story of stages in a way? Mm, absolutely. I mean, and thank you for bringing that up. I, the, one thing I wanted to do with the book was to, because I am a middle-aged white straight cis woman, nobody else is. 
except for Hazel, I guess Hazel is, but everybody, all my other teachers and I didn't, she, I didn't choose her, Laura, my cheering teacher chose her, but I wanted all my teachers um, to have, to complicate that narrative of, I mean, I don't think there's anything wrong with people like me, you know, and we do craft and that's great, but lots of other people do too. And um, so people are queer, people are uh, non-binary, people are of color. Um, so I, I wanted to have that be the case, although I don't, the only time, thing I, this person I bring that forward with is the shearing teacher because I wanted to learn from a woman and that was hard to find. Yeah. Um, so there's that piece, but generationally I, I was certainly thinking about it going in because I was, you know, when I was sitting and when lockdown happened and I, I, I talked to my mom all day and which, as I said earlier, my mom was dead. So it was a little weird. At the same time, I realized, you know, that there were so many things, you know, I was thinking, I was thinking, I thought, I don't know how my mom learned from that. And there are, cause she didn't learn from her mother. And that was just one of so many questions in the self-absorbed ways of daughters that I never asked my mom, you know, like, mom, you know, what did you do when it got hard? Mom, were you ever lonely? Mom, what was it like to raise a teenage girl? Mom, what'd you do when you had to let her go? I mean, I never asked. And I don't know that I would have heard. And what I kind of realized I wanted was this thing that was in defiance of nature and physics, which was to have a conversation with my mother when she was my age and be that age also. And have that wisdom of an older woman, but not ever actually be older, you know? Um, and so I was thinking a lot about mothers and daughters and then my own, you know, not only me as a daughter, but me as a mother. And so I automatically was thinking of, you know, my mother's generation, my generation, and, and, you know, the ways that I wanted my daughter, that I thought I was going to be this mom who could like give her everything that I didn't have and that she needed. I could give myself what I didn't have and what I needed, but you're going to hit that wall. And one of the walls for me with my daughter was that um, my husband's Asian. Uh, she looks very much like him. Um, she, and, and when, when George Floyd was murdered, when the pandemic hit, when anti-Asian violence erupted, even more than usual, um, guiding my child of color as a white parent through the pain of that, I could only go so far with her. I could only walk that journey so far with her. And I couldn't be the guide that she needed and wanted and wished I could be for her um, through that. And, and hitting your, you always hit your own limits as a mother of being from your generation, of being in your context um, and needing all the other mothers in her life, needing all my friends who could be there for her when I couldn't be. Um, so thinking a lot about those generational things. And then, yeah, when I was on the ranch, um, Laura, who was half my age, my cheering teacher, was thinking about her transition. Her friends were getting married. They were having babies. She'd been shearing for several years. It's an itinerant life. It's a difficult life. Did she want to keep doing this life? What did she want to do and be before she settled down with a wife, with a child? And Hazel, who was twice, uh, no, she was not twice my age. She was a, a generation ahead of me. And she had been on this ranch since she was in her 20s. She loved it there. Now she was aging. Her husband had Alzheimer's. She was caregiving for him, thinking about her own age, what that meant, whether she should be walking away, not wanting to walk away. And all of us were in these transitional moments as women and trying to grapple with what that meant to us. So yeah, that was a very real, and we're in them so often, you know, we are, we're in them all the time. Yeah. So being able to kind of surface that for my daughter who was going to college, for Laura who was turning 30, 
for you who's turning, you know, who's 42, for me who's who was in my late 50s, for Hazel who was 72. We're all transitioning and and learning to be able to let go of what you've been clinging to, learning to move on, learning to embrace the new. It's hard. Yeah. Yeah. I really appreciated that part of of the book a lot because there was there was a, a grace to it or it reminded us that there should be a grace to um, to ourselves, I guess, um, which is probably sometimes one of the hardest things to do. And it also brought back, bring us back to the spinning, because yeah. one of the things in the spinning was that the, the fates of ancient Greece yep. are spinners. They're three sisters and they determine our lives. They want the young one whose name is Clotho, not to put too fine a point on it, but she um, spins the strand of our life, the matron, um, measures it out, and Atropos, who is the the crone, um, snips it and determines our end. So dealing with those three phases of our lives and facing down for me that oh my God, I'm going into crone, and that is so devalued in our culture. But crones are also the source of wisdom. They're the source of justice. They have power. And trying to like, I mean, it's hard, you know, like I, I, that I, I can't say, and then I realized it and I, no, it's really hard because you're devalued at every turn. We don't respect older women. Everybody's getting plastic surgery because we know that, you know, not judging it, just saying, you know, and it's, it's, it's rough. It's a rough one. Um, yeah. And I also find a lot of joy in it personally, but it's also a rough one. It, it was, it was just a very good reminder to, not try not to because it's it's natural to sort of have a horrified reaction for however long that that sense of horror right. and fear and fear lasts but but to also to kind of look and try to appreciate where you are in, in the in those particular things and and to turn around and to try to make it easier for those that are coming coming right. behind you right in a and you're never going to be this young again by the way so you no. might as well <laughs> right. exactly. you got eight years till crone so it's exactly. 50 according to the books so. Is it? Is it? Oh, okay. All right. Yeah. Well, clock is on then. Yeah. <laughs> it's well, it's okay over here. It's nice over here. <laughs> That's good. You can That's join good. us. It's fine. That's good to know. Well, Peggy, thank you so much for joining us again. This was super fun. Thank you very much.